Welcome to the MindChimp Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to the MindChimp Podcast. How are we doing? All doing good. Well. Is this awesome. thing on? Yep. I, think it, I think it's all on. It's all good. Um, so rather than me do the whole intros, um, I'll, I'll say a name and then say hey. So Charlie, say hey. Hey. Martin. Hey there. Nick. Hi. And Gemma. How do you? Awesome. So I'm sure it's how do. I love it. <laughs> I want the brief, Gemma. <laughs> Way up. <laughs> so, um, yeah, welcome to the podcast. This is kind of one of the first times I've ever done um, a group one. So this will absolutely either be a, a raging success or a car crash. We'll soon find out, I guess. So the way this is going to work, I've got around about 17 questions, give or take. Um, if we get through them 17 questions, great. If we don't, great. We'll see. And then if we end up talking about something random, that's absolutely cool with me as well. So don't feel locked down to uh, actually just talk about this one thing. However, the first thing I want you to do for me, please, if you can, I want to go through and we'll start with Gemma. I want you to tell me what your favourite Christmas film is and why. Great question. I've got to say the classic Home Alone. I just love it. I love slapstick. I love Macaulay Culkin. Um, I just wanted to rig my house with all those traps when I was younger. It, it's just brilliant. <laughs> okay. Um, Nick? I don't really have a favourite Christmas movie. I don't know. Um, maybe um, maybe uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Okay. Okay. Classic. Classic. Um, and the reason you picked that one? Is there a reason? I think um, it's a good story and it's old school. Martin, how about you? Um, it's a girly movie. I, I quite like Love Actually. Actually, um, I, I saw this is this is kind of one of those segways, I guess, in a little way. I, I had a, a look at Facebook yesterday, and somebody said, "I fucking hate this time of year when everyone loves Love Actually because just think about what." Uh, he did to Emma Thompson when he uh, had the affair with the slot in the office. And somebody had written underneath, you should just watch Die Hard afterwards and look him fall down the escalator <laughs> or elevator. <laughs> now see how we feel. You know, so I thought... I'm going to change my vote to Morton's. That's way better. I like Love Actually more. <laughs> I like I like Love Actually. What is that? Seven stories. Englishmen go to Canada and meet or to 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 the US and meet all of the hot girls. It's, it's, it's nice. <laughs> I like it. I think we see that quite a lot, though. Like when we look at when we listen to say songs, you've got like Mr. Brightside or Hey Ya, and when you listen to them, they're quite upbeat kind of you know songs. But when you actually listen to what they're about, they're actually quite it's quite it's got quite a dark take on things. Um, but yeah, sidetrack. I like the Bill Nighy um, the story best of all. Yeah. Oh yeah. That. What about the Aging stalker Rock. one? The stalker one. Yeah, the guy stalking Kira Knightley. Oh, that's like... creepy. That's oh, yeah. so creepy. It's really and everyone's creepy. like, like, in his defense, you know, the guy that uh, Kieran Idle actually marries, he was a super bad guy in episode, I think it 11 to 13 of uh, Firefly. Oh, that's fine then. So, yeah, I, I <laughs> he, 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 had, he had it coming. I think it's the same universe. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. 
Where, where are we on the car crash scale, Danny? I mean, we're doing well. I think we're driving at about 80 miles per hour into a bridge so fast. So we're doing great. Okay. In, um, in that case, if I can't say love actually because it kind of derailed things, I'm going to go back and say Die Hard. I, that, that's a great Christmas movie. I love it. Okay. This is a, a good topic of debate. Is that even a Christmas movie? Is it? Is it not? Uh, I think it's the yeah, Christmas totally film. a Christmas film. Yeah, definitely. I think it, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Charlie, then let's go to what is your favorite Christmas? I was going to say Die Hard, but I won't because it's boring. Um, I'll say uh, Elf. Mm. Um, I love um, Will Ferrell, and uh, it's just silly and fun. That's why I like it. Okay, good, good, Elf good. is a good one. Yeah, I think my. Uh, I think my mine's a, a kind of a toss up between um, Bad Santa and National Lampoon Christmas Vacation. Classic. Toss up between. Them. Can I, the second one. Can I can I make a suggestion that you can turn any movie that you like into a great Christmas movie and a drinking game at the same time? You just take you know a, a, a Santa hat and then you hang it on the corner of your TV. If you're two people, hang a Santa hat on oh, either yeah, corner yeah, of the TVs. Yeah. And every, every time somebody wears a hat, you have to drink. Brilliant. <laughs> it, tu- it turned Ant-Man into the best Christmas movie that we ever watched. Man. We had to watch it two, ta- two days in a row because we forgot the second half of it after we watched it the first time. <laughs> so, um, okay, well, I guess the way this is going to work is I've got 17 questions. I'm not going to dictate the way this conversation is going to go. Um, I'll probably well, start with... Pardon? That was question one, wasn't it? It's like a warm-up more than anything, oh, but you okay. can take it as a question one. That's completely cool. Um, Charlie, you were the first one in a group, so that means you get to go first. Oh. So um, all you've got to do is pick a question. Some of these questions are a bit deep, some of them are a bit daft, and some of them are unfortunately L&D related as well. <laughs> um, so go for it, Charlie. Pick a number between 1 and 17. 11, please, Dan. 11, Okay. This is a learning question. So what is experience design? Now, just because you've asked a question, Charlie, it doesn't mean you have to jump in first. It's open, The questions are open up to the t- to the floor. But yeah, what is experience design to you? What is it to me? Um, I think, yeah, I mean, when we were talking about experience design in the early days when I was working with Nick and the rest of the team in the, I'll call them the glory days, um, we, uh, it, I think the inspiration came from immersive theatre because I, th- I think myself and the rest of the team sort of noticed there was something very different about the experience of, of immersive theatre versus other kind of experiences we went on. Um, and it was the, you know, it was the the immersion and the, the emotional connection to the story and the fact that you were, well, immersed in it. And, um, and I think, then with Nick's effective context theory, um, it started to take shape, and I don't, I don't really know where the where the, the term experience design came from, but um, I think it's probably Nick. Um, but yeah, I think that's overall. I think because most businesses won't actually spend the money to do really cool immersive experiences, a lot of the time it can be a, a kind of poor man's immersive theatre. So that's how I describe it: a poor man's immersive theatre. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Anyone else want to build on that or change it or challenge? Yeah, I'd build on it. I think to to Charlie's point, the term has been around for a while. um, And so we've come across it in other contexts, but I guess 
we wanted to start to differentiate it in the learning context. Um, so you come across it in like um, hotels and I think um, interestingly Kenny went to this college of experience design which is an amazing experience it's kind of Hogwarts type thing but he, what he found in his reflection was every, nobody else there was doing learning everybody else was doing kind of experience design for kind of like well this is our theme park or you know this is something else that they're trying to do so I think Charlie's right that it was just thinking how would we apply that in a learning context um, and, and the definition that that we're sort of working on is the science of kind of transformative experiences. So an aspiration more than, than an actual reality to kind of take it out of the, we're just going to do some crazy stuff in a room type space and actually begin to think, how could you transform somebody? What experience would that person need to have to make them a different person at the end of that experience? Um, so that's sort of where, where I am at the moment. Yeah, all I would add to that is that I think a lot of people have been doing this kind of stuff yeah. intuitively for many years, like taking leaders out on a safari or sticking up a mountain and having them survive yeah. for three days. It's just until, to some extent, until this point in the L&D world, um, there's not really been a strong theoretical underpinning to doing yeah, I think it. That's right. I might add yeah. to that that I still see in... Uh, I wouldn't say with my clients, but I, I still see in, in some some of the, let's say, senior leadership training, that was one of the things that was brought up here. Uh, some of the programs that I see being designed are still being thought up by people who used to design classrooms and now is doing a little bit of blended learning, as an example, whose experience have been to be in a classroom and deliver stuff from a manual and they still design things the same way. You know, they're still thinking, what are the business needs that we have? uncovered or think that we would uncovered because the business have told us there's something that you know problems that we need to solve and then let's solve for that by you know talking about some of the topics that you know the business have brought up as being a problem and they're still not thinking about what is actually relevant for the user uh, the thinking that the users or the, the the students the learners have a choice whether they want to learn from the experience that you're giving them and they're not thinking about creating that quality experience and that relevance and what they're doing with the different activities so i still see plenty of examples where it's not happening i still see more of them where it is but it, it's still not happening to the extent it should it's almost easier to define it in that way, Morton, which is it, that's what it's not. It's kind of like that topic centricity that you describe. It's kind of like, well, we know what the experience is, right? You get in the room, you sit down, you shut up and you listen to the person who's talking. And and it's almost a push against that. Well, you know, if you if that's what you think a, a learning experience is, then, you know, maybe you should start thinking about what the learning experience could be. Um, yeah. I just I was just going to say, I still run into a lot of people who identify themselves as being training managers or training development managers. And, and I expect them to develop, you know, that part, you know, that type of training, whilst the people who are saying they are, you know, I don't know, enabling people or the business to do better, that type of thing, are the ones that, where there's a bigger chance that they actually use experience design and what they do and they create something that's relevant. Yeah, I, I think to, to build on that, it's a, a similar point again, but I think for me, it's about understanding how something feels when you create it so whether you're creating like a digital experience or a physical experience um, or a virtual experience like what does it feel like to be in that and how will you be changed because of it and I think that's one thing that people just don't think about when they make stuff particularly in learning you don't think about that sort of emotional connection that you're making and I think it goes through everything not just 
the learning stuff we develop but even if you're if you're like facilitating a workshop or a meeting or something like that like how do you design that experience to get the outcome that you want and um, it doesn't have to necessarily be a, a course or an intervention or anything like that yeah I, I, and actually you reminded me of something that charlie i think made me think about which was your personal experience design if you like i can't remember i think maybe you wrote a blog charlie about what 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 are you as an experience which i thought was really thought-provoking so if you if you bring that same frame of reference to you what do you like as an experience um it's a little bit like christian um christian clayton's um uh, jobs to be done thing it's kind of like how are you as an experience and i found that a really interesting way to think about about myself i guess and, and about people yeah they talk about it, but personal brand is another way of thinking about it. Um, I, I, all I was going to say to to add on to everyone, everything else, what everyone else has said is what I've kind of noticed from my most recent role is um, that the experience doesn't necessarily need to be an external experience. In the same way that mindfulness can be quite effective in an organisation as well, you can have an emotional connection and and go on a journey in your own head to some extent. Um, and I think to, with the coaching stuff I'm doing at the moment, that's sort of what we do is take people through um, a different different ways of looking at themselves and different ways of approaching their own challenges. And actually that changes their mindset in a, in a different way to, you know, uh, we need to create this amazing environment with actors and all these other stuff. So you can actually craft a, a good experience design, as you've said, Gemma, online, or, or actually you can craft it in a very introspective way. So... That's another sort of third angle, I would imagine, on experience design. So, so Ben, if, if we're defining experience design as that, so what, what's your take on, well, let's just put it into a industry context. So, you know, we, we constantly see that people's job titles are constantly changing, even though they're potentially not getting promoted or they're not really moving or actually they're not even doing anything differently. Example being going from an ID designer to a learning experience designer are they both the same thing then and and should should i be able to just go actually i'm going from id to experience design and that's fine because no one's going to challenge me and no one's going to say no you're an id designer <laughs> i think this is a dangerous question because I, I i actually think also id means something different in different parts of the world you know so i have a lot of of good colleagues in the us who are who, whose title is instructional designer who isn't what we would see as being a structural designer here, you know. So, so they are people who has kind of developed a, a skill set that is broader and wider than doing instructional design, where somebody have said again, this is the need now, build me a solution, preferably in PowerPoint or wherever. Um, but at, at at the same time, I think you've seen quite a few people who have a, a the skill set, same skill set that they have had for five years, ten years, who have changed the title a few different times, but haven't changed their approach, or haven't changed the solutions they develop. And and I think that's quite dangerous as well. So there's something around the assumption of what a title actually means that, you know, you shouldn't be taking really. And, you know, you need to kind of assess what a person can do when you're having a conversation with that person to find out what type of conversation you can have with them. Because otherwise, you know, you're you're not going to agree on things. Maybe the dangerous questions are good ones. I mean... There's a peculiar kind of circularity about this, which is that what we see in, in the industry time and time again is that new labels get applied to doing the same thing. So somebody who was, you know, an instructional designer two years ago, it's no longer in vogue and they start calling themselves something else. But, you know, fundamentally they're doing the same thing, which sort of begs the question, well, how would you change somebody 
which all comes all the way back around to, well, you need to design an experience. You'd need somebody to actually experience a different way of doing things before that change in title actually meant anything more than just, you know, um, a, a, a new marketing slogan or label. Yep. Hmm. I think I was having a conversation recently with, um, we were talking like I think we were talking about experience design, and I was saying, look, experience design isn't new. Like like was mentioned recently, just just a couple of minutes ago, it's like you know, there's there's a lot of overlap between experience design and I think experiential marketing and stuff like that. And you know, I think when when I look at kind of experience design, I kind of follow, I tend to follow kind of the five V experience design model. That tends to be what I use loosely, and I work towards that, or I use that as a as a guide. Um, but I just think. It's just it's it's easy to see something what you are and then kind of you know I, I do wonder in in two years time when you know experience design isn't the new you know the new knight in shining armor and something else comes along how quick it'll be to people go actually I, I've done that I've, I've done that once or actually I understand it so that's what I'm going to be now it's just um and I, th- I think you find that quite a lot in in industries anyway it tends to be you know it's easy just to quickly shift left or right whenever you want really i don't know i think that's yeah. sad in the sense that it's a reflection of our industry and that the labels don't mean anything i mean you couldn't say you were an engineer a structural engineer kind of one year you know and now i'm a you know a, a bio engineer the next year because that actually means something yeah. you know you actually have to be able to do <laughs> things and it has a connection to a, a theoretical basis and i think that this shifting of labels reflects something corrupt within the industry which is a uh, we don't have this kind of foundation or, or theoretical basis. There are no specialists. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's the nub, and another uh, the nub of the the issue in many ways is that there's almost like an intellectualization of is that even a word? I don't know. Um, <laughs> of, um, it's just bullshit terms, isn't it? Um, I I think there's an an intellectualization in um, in L and D to the extent that there's kind of a small group of people kind of coming up with these new ways of, of talking about the same thing or, or crafting themselves as thought leaders in, you know, in slightly different ways by using different terminology to describe the same thing. And um, that's why I'm kind of really alienated from the whole thing. And I find it incredibly frustrating. I don't attend any L&D conferences because actually what I prefer to do is look at what the marketing industry or, you know, the, um, you know, different, different industries are doing um because i feel like they're they are specialists in their particular area and i have a wife who's does social media for a living and i can see how quickly that industry develops it's you know weekly um they've got you know they change they understand data they understand their customers they understand experiences and um and i'm much more i have much more affinity to that world than the world of D, which just seems to be kind of moving around in circles and patting each other on the back because they've managed to deliver another course which feels like the course they delivered 10 years ago so it's a bit of a rant it's a good rant though i think it's really valid like what what we are doing as what we're calling ourselves experienced designers or whatever is we're changing behavior and that's exactly what marketing and advertising does it really understands human behavior behavioral economics behavioral science and then uses that to nudge people in a direction to change what they're doing and usually to buy something. Um, technically, for us, it should be easier because we're not trying to get people to part with any cash, right? <laughs> we're just trying to get them to change their behaviour. But 
Um, I think I think you're right. Taking cues from but we don't measure, and that's the problem. That that's the real problem because we don't really, in many cases, we don't really know if we're having an impact. So we can't make data-driven decisions about what to do, and there's no, in that way, it's no, there's no science around it. It's it's all kind of finger in the air stuff a lot of the time. That's it, but it doesn't need to be, does it? Because if we start with business outcomes instead of we want someone to know this, then we can measure whether that business yeah. outcome has changed or not. It's like blindingly simple and blindingly obvious, but no one does it in L and D. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd like to see more of that of of people measuring it using the data and then making decisions based on that. This is sidetrack, but measurement me- measuring is always a tricky one in general. You know, I think you know you can. There's there's probably different there's different levels of how you can measure. You know, you can go you can go straight in and go yeah data led measurement, but and then people can go well, actually did it do what it said on the tin? Did it did it give a good experience? You know, when you look at kind of let's use someone like um, Meow Wolf. I think we talked about that in the group in the past, but kind of you know they're they're like a very arty experience kind of put together projects. I wonder how they would measure their experience. Like you could easily go, okay, well it's ticket sales, but actually there's got to be more than that. You know, if you want, if you want a data fact, then yeah, you could go straight up with it. Well, we sold all our tickets and, you know, maybe we've got some repeat customs and stuff, but I wonder how many people go through that experience and, you know, I wonder how they're measuring because, if you could just do it from a profit kind of thing, well, it's it's yeah, great. We we sold tickets and it was a sellout. Great. Are we talking about training RI now, Danny? And is this the point at which this is a car crash? Yeah, I think that's. I think that happened very very quick. Let's um, <laughs> <laughs> pull yeah. out that um that well, rabbit hole there, yeah. Nick. So, um, Martin, I think you was the second one in the group. So go for it. Pick a number between one and seventeen. Uh, please, can I have number eight? Number eight. Okay, let's let's see. This is an L and D question. So, kind of, but kind of not. So, I guess from from you guys from your guys' point of view, what is your um, what is your plans for two thousand and nineteen from your personal development? So you know, non L and D related, and from your professional, and again, your professional development might not even be to stay in L and D. I don't know, but yeah, what's what's your plans for two thousand nineteen? personally and professionally ah oh, who gets to go first you it's your question <laughs> you can do yeah uh, okay so um mine are actually remarkably unclear but kind of succinct and clear at the same time so um i took a few months off last summer to learn to play poker in a completely different way a completely different approach from anything that i ever done before um, and it took me like a few months to unlearn lots of the stuff that I've learned and learn new stuff. Uh, and I'm going to go to the World Series of Poker this year to apply some of that new skill. So I'm going to be playing quite a bit of poker between now and, say, the end of the summer. Uh, so that's going to be interesting. Um, and I um, have also decided, having having worked kind of primarily with one client in the last few years, I want to change that up a little bit and see if I can work with the say three or four different clients over this year, over 2019, uh, and hopefully on some quite varied projects. So both a mix of learning design, but also with a kind of a nod to all of the learning technology that I've been working with for the last few years. So learning more in all three areas is going to be my my goals for the year. Can you uh, more? I'm curious to know about your different approach to poker how is it different? Uh-huh. 
<laughs> this, this this will become a very very quickly a, a deep technical conversation. Uh, but if I were to simplify it, um, when people start playing poker and when they learn to play poker, and if you don't know too much about poker and you read any books to kind of get started, you know people bluff too much to start out with because they think that's what the game is about, and then after that people tighten up, and because they learn only to play aces and kings and ace king and only from a late position, all of those type of things. But mathematically, that's completely incorrect. That's not the right way of playing poker because you have to play um, a certain amount of hands from all different positions, regardless of what hands you actually have. So the way that I learned to play poker instead is that you look a lot less on your own cards and a lot more on what type of cards you're supposed to have in that position. And then you play your cards like the hands you're supposed to be having rather than what you have. So basically your own cards kind of matters a whole lot less and it's your own, it's your read of other people and the skill level that they have, uh, because of course you can't bluff somebody who is a beginner. So you can only bluff people who is on your level or higher than your level. So there's a lot more about the people reading and the psychology that goes into it and a lot more, you know, maths as well that goes into it because you basically have to be way more aggressive in your poker play and assertive is probably a better word than you are when you when you play the traditional style um and 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 it's it's interesting in the sense that again it only works in the, on, on people who are on your level are better so you have to kind of constantly gauge who you're playing against in a table of nine or ten people who, who you're better at or who, who do you have more insights at than others and then play according to how they how they see you how they understand you mm, so, that's so interesting that's Okay. What about you, Chandler? Um, this year, uh, so I want to become certified coach, which is um, which I'm starting, and uh, I want to travel. I'm going to go to India, I think, this year, and uh, I want to move house and um, hopefully survive Brexit. I want to share it. We want to talk about that. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, it's nothing, nothing too exciting, really, I wouldn't say. Okay. Okay. Um, so have you moved house before, Charlie? I take it you've, you've been through that whole process before? Yeah, we've got one bed, one bed flat currently, but um, I'm outgrowing it. Basically, you just accumulate too much stuff, don't you? And then you upgrade and then you accumulate more stuff and you upgrade again and then then you get too old so you have to downgrade and you go in the reverse <laughs> so that's the kind of cadence of life isn't it so depressing Charlie so, <laughs> uh, Nick over to you what about you yeah um, well I've got a book to publish uh, or rather I've written a book someone else will publish it um, so I think it would be a bit of an interesting crossroads really so a crossroads you can either just kind of carry on um, as you were before I think that's possibly the most likely outcome or it might give you other options so I'd be quite interested to see sort of what happens really and then I guess after that I'll need to think about what the next big challenge is okay um can you stop are you, are you hoping for anything Nick sorry Dan I'm trying not to hope for anything I think um because I think otherwise you can build things up in your own mind um mm. and you can start to slip from reality and you you become a sort of Walter Mitty character you have your own idea of who you are and and what you deserve and whatever. So I'm just thinking, well, mm. it'd be good to good to sort of take it from there, really, get it out there and see what happens next. Okay, cool. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about the book, Nick, or is it kind of all hush hush and under wraps? Yeah, no, I can't. I mean, it's um, called How People Learn. It's a book about how people learn. 
um, and it introduces a completely different way of thinking about learning really um, and then it talks about well if you bought into that approach into that theory what would it mean for the way we design education what would um, it mean for the way we design training so the best possible outcome would be everybody in education and training thinks oh my god yeah why didn't we think of this and it slaps their um, palms to their foreheads and says yes you know we've got to change everything um, and so there's quite a bit of description about how you go about changing things if you did that but I don't really expect that to happen so you know we'll see okay okay sounds interesting when when do we know a date of when that's due to to kind of hit the shelves early yeah, thanks Danny. <laughs> need to get better at this um i um it's early may um so yeah about that time perfect, perfect. available in all good bookshops and some shit ones too <laughs> yeah, <laughs> how about you Gemma? you need to get marketing that nick yeah. <laughs> Um, my plans for next year, and um, it's funny, Nick and I were talking about this yesterday. Um, I think I, what I want to do more is what I'm going to call extracurricular stuff. So I feel like this, the experiences that I've had this year where I've got the most out of it have been stuff that I've done with like-minded people off our own backs, not for any reason other than the fact that we're interested or we want to change stuff. So things like this, like like the Mindship podcast, Um there's a potentially a vlog in the wings coming soon um doing a bit more bit more blogging and just sharing stuff that I'm doing a little bit more so I've I've done quite a few of the the conferences and I know Charlie you've got a particular view on L&D conferences um I take a slightly different view that there's a lot of people out there standing there telling you what to do but there's not a great deal of people who are doing it and who are talking about that so I want to share more about the challenges that I face and the problems that I've run up against and the mistakes that I've made um, and try and help make the industry better through that. So I think that's like my work type stuff that I'm, that I'm hoping to achieve. I want to carry on trying to make work feel more like real life. That's my mission, um, solve real problems. And then I guess on the personal side of stuff, um, I'm getting married next year, which yeah. I'm really excited about. So, yay! <laughs> uh, so we're going to we're get, getting married in the desert um, outside Las Vegas, which will be cool. Um, and I suppose that ties into my my lifelong mission of have more adventures. So yeah, have more adventures next year. I reckon. I, uh, Just do, do. Why did you choose the desert outside Las Vegas? Um, we went there this year in April um, as a stopover on the way to Mexico with the intention of choosing a venue in Mexico and we just fell in love with it like it's such a party town it's so much fun and the desert is just beautiful so I'm gonna go out there say some vows in the desert and then come back and have some pizza and beers on the strip in Vegas <laughs> so Martin if you're playing poker I might see you there <laughs> I was gonna say I could swing by the desert no problem <laughs> <laughs> wow okay that sounds that sounds Ooh. awesome. So is that kind of is planning underway with that and kind of in full full swing at the moment and Gemma, I take it? It sure is. I have got list after list after list. <laughs> so yeah, wow. all good. All good. Pinterest boards galore. It's a way forward. It's a way forward. Mm-hmm. Um I think for me personally, my 2019's my 2018's been an absolute wreck. Um so I think my 2019 it can only go one way from this, I hope. Uh, That's what we said after uh, Donald Trump, or was it Brexit happened first? Donald Trump. (laughs) Strike two, Charlie, strike two. (laughs) Uh, Well, we thought 2017 was going to be bad. 
Things can only get better, Danny. Things Cheers, can only get better. I'm just looking at the dark clouds outside the house. Um, <laughs> hey, we're still in 2018, so you've got a few days of shit left, this... and then it's going to all get good after that. Good point, mm-hmm. good point. Um, so... And I, sh- I, sh- I should point out, if there's dark clouds outside, then Gemma's just going to see this likelihood for snow is a lot higher. Exactly, it's only a good thing. Yeah, snow, <laughs> snow is good, snow is good. <laughs> I think um, so. I've kind of landed my my next job, um, which Woo! I can't really talk about just yet, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and right. I kind of just want to do a few more experiments. So the group that I created, experiment podcast, experiment these meetups. What I'm doing is an experiment, um, and I want to look at how I create a UK version of something like Meow Wolf. Um, I want to kind of create a conference what is very experiential, and not just your typical. Like you said, Gemma, someone in front standing and talking at you. I want it to kind of be engaging, kind of how how can I build the anticipation up and stuff like that for a conference like you do when you for a ride at Alton Towers. Ooh, oh, nice. That sounds cool. So, so that's kind of what I'm playing with at the moment. Um, does that sound familiar, Charlie? Yeah, it does. We had so, a chat about okay, this. So the next to the group was Nick. So Nick, go for it. Pick a number from 1 to 17. Uh, 7. 7. Um Okay, so at the beginning of today, at the beginning of our session, I asked you to pick a value. Yep. Yeah. And uh, and now down his values. So, why did you pick? In fact, let's do this. Nick, what was the value you ended up with? What? Oh, three. Um. So at the end, at the end of this oh, session, at the start of the session, you should it should be left yeah. with just one thing. Have a value. Yeah. yeah. Sure. What was it? Was um, what was yours? It was childishness. Okay. Okay. Um. And why is that important to you? Well, it's become more important to me. So the other one, um, uh, the one that um, I used to have as a number one value is number number two is kind of understanding. Um, and I've sort of realized that understanding is limited is by your childishness. In other words, it, it's the other way around than you might think is you can only understand things to the extent you're prepared to be childish. And, and you sort of see this in case that sounds weird. You sort of see this as people grow older. They get very kind of sober and serious and they take themselves very seriously. And that's the point at which they stop developing and their thinking stops evolving. And I've been thinking a long time about emotionally. It's not really a rational process. It's an emotional process. And it's like that sort of sense of gravity weighs them down, you know, their own seriousness. And I've started to realize that unless you can preserve that sort of feeling of childishness, there was a book I read many years ago by Suzuki called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. It's a little bit like that. It's basically saying, look, you... You have to be able to keep that spirit of childishness if, and that, that feeling of being a beginner if, if you wish to continue developing and growing and learning. Um, and so I sort of realized that however much you understand, that then becomes a bit of a weight and that the more important thing is that you remain kind of open. So, yeah. And what about, what about you, Martin? Let's go with you next. Um, so I, I have... Um what Nick would probably call a boring adult kind of value left. So I chose integrity. Um, and the reason why that's important for me is I work a lot with transformation and learning. Um, and I think it's absolutely key that the clients that I work with, that we have a level of trust um, that goes both ways, that we keep our promises. Um, I find that what I help companies do is actually think through problem areas that they have. And I need them to be very honest with me about what works and what doesn't work for them 
And of course, that's not something I can share outside the companies that I'm working with, what those things are. And then based on that, I make suggestions to what solutions would work best for the situations that they're in. And at the same time, you know, they also need to trust that I have the integrity to only uh, provide advice on what solutions would actually be best for them. So I'm not looking at who the different providers can be or the different type of solutions based on who I've worked with before or anything. So I think that integrity that goes both ways and, and trust in that, you know, they're open, I'm open, and we're coming up with the best solution together is absolutely key for the type of work that I'm doing. And Gemma, what was the one you was with? So the one that I ended up with was adventure, and that probably will come to no surprise to some people that I know. Um, for me, ad- adventure is about sort of being surprised by the world. So it doesn't necessarily mean loads of travel, although that is what I also love. Um, but it's just noticing things differently. So just looking looking at stuff you wouldn't normally look at, noticing, sort of taking your eyes off your phone now and again and, and letting yourself be surprised by what's out there. Um, doing things that feel a little bit scary as well I think for me so um, letting yourself be scared and exhilarated and and just sort of stepping into the unknown a little bit and having new experiences Um, so that's that's adventure for me and that's what's what's really important okay cool and Charlie Uh, so I wrote uh, kindness which is, um, despite my kind of dour heart, glass half empty rhetoric, um, <laughs> I do actually, um, I do actually really value uh, value can, kindness. But I also think that really it's about evolving thinking beyond yourself and what you you personally can get out of your life and um, whether it's gathering experiences or gathering possessions or gathering whatever it is. Um, I, th- I feel like that road leads to this sort of almost addiction to the new. And I don't think you can really achieve contentment without um, without basically shifting your mindset to be more focused on others and and uh, and their well-being. So that's why I put kindness. Ah, okay. I was listening to um, a podcast yesterday and it was a guy who created um the itunes uh, not itunes the apple stores and he he was talking about his kind of his ups and his downs in his career and then he left um apple did another worked for another retail and then created his own company and basically the company is um when you buy i don't know a a new mobile or something some tech savvy basically we have these guys a bit like the tech squad where they'll come out and meet you and set everything up and one of his values if you like as a business was kindness and he's like, usually from, from a business point of view, you don't usually see kindness as a value. And he he pretty much just said that kind of very similar to what you were saying, Charlie, around kind of it needs to be pretty much the, the, the number one thing because if you're not going to be kind to others and you're not going to, you're not going to be able to share. There's actually a bit, I'll, I'll link the podcast in the show notes. You can have a listen to it later on down the line. Kindness yeah. is good. I think when, uh, when I did mine, I came, I was struggled with two. I had either curiosity or imagination. Um, and then gun to head, I'd go with curiosity. Um, I like that. Yeah. But I guess it's like with any values, right? If if you live to our main one value, happiness will come along anyway because you're living to the, the thing what drives you fundamentally. Um, but yeah, curiosity is, is mine. I think being able to step into the unknown and go, actually, what's around that corner? Or how, how can I connect these dots? I wonder if that will work. I wonder if it won't. Should we try this? Should it fail? So what? We tried, we failed, whatever. It's kind of just, yeah, it's a, it's a weird one. It's a weird one. 
I'm going to say something a little bit rude because um, everybody kind of has, if you ask people about their values, they'll come up with stuff. And the values are always good sounding things. They're never sort of bad sounding things. But the one I think I've learned to fear the most is professionalism. Okay. Because when, when you meet somebody and they say their value is professionalism, what that really means is, and I'm being rude slightly here, is it means doing things by the book. And often what the book is, is whatever the conventional, whatever the rules are. A professional is somebody who always does things according to the rules. And I found that, I think personally, it's one of the things that I struggle with most because a lot of the work we do is trying to say, well, maybe, you know, look, let's do things differently. But what I have to remind myself of often is everybody is the hero in their own story. So the sorts of people who are stopping you doing something innovative or saying you shouldn't do that or you have to get sign off for that will have a very strong set of values and they are the heroes of their own stories and, and their heroic value is professionalism. And so it's it's been helpful for me to see things, I guess, from those different perspectives um, and also to understand the values that, you know, where, where perhaps there might be a conflict. You need you need you need professionalism value people though because this kind of hippie fantasy that everyone could just break the rules and do whatever you know there 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 are some you know safety is a great example there are some reasons why processes and things work in a certain way because statistically it reduces you know the chances that you're going to get killed so I'm not I'm not poo pooing your <laughs> your statement Nick because I agree with you but I also think that there's also it can go too far the other way where you know, we disrespect people who who do have these kind of values and principles. Um, but there's going to be a natural tension between between that perspective and 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 your perspective. And you don't get far without having an appreciation of both sides. You know, it's impossible to have a conversation if you don't. I think because you know, you you, you do find that the people that yeah, I think go for it. Yeah. I think that's a really good good point, Martin. I think it sort of ties in with your value, Charlie, of kindness. Like over the years, I've struggled with this this sort of tension between the people who are trying to stop you from doing stuff and us wanting to do good stuff and it's only been recently that actually I've started to try and see things from other people's point of view a bit more and to treat those people with kindness and to understand that they are coming for for them from a good place like they're not no one's out to sabotage each other or at least I would hope not well entirely true (laughs) um but I think just having a little bit of and thinking actually this person is probably up against it they're they've got their own challenges their own objectives and goals that they're going after they're being driven by something different than what I'm being driven by and just trying to see things from their point of view a little bit has actually helped me to to get more stuff done than just sort of banging heads with someone do you know what I mean yeah I think it comes down to like self-awareness like I know I am at nine percent of the time I'm pretty much away with the fairies thinking of this next random thing but I think it's, it's, it's having that kind of self-awareness to go I know I am I think like this and this is where I go but actually I need to get some people around me who think very realist and yeah. you know it's like if you're creating a project you know you, you, or you want a team you create a team not of the same of you you kind of you know you want to you want to set a team of people who will constantly clash against well not constantly clash but challenging in the right possible way so if you're a if you're this this mm-hmm. kind of imaginary expert you, you definitely need a realist around you because if not you're just going to have lots and lots of ideas and kind of nothing on the end of it but i'm, I'm yeah. going to push a, a bit further on that because i think that what's really behind what people are saying is conformity 
It's been my observation is that the vast majority of people are driven fundamentally by the need to kind of fit in and conform. Um, but nobody will say conformity because that sounds like a bad thing. That's what I mean about they'll always say something good. But I think that's really what's under the bonnet. You lift professionalism. It's the need to conform to what every, everybody else is doing. And I, and I agree absolutely with what you're saying is that you don't make progress without some appreciation of, of difference. But sometimes you need to spot where the, the really big differences are. So I, I think, Nick, maybe that's partly down to your definitions of what professionalism is. Because I think that if you are hired to be a creative advisor or consultant of some kind and you don't conform because you stop being creative and you stop challenging things and so on, you know, then you're not professional. I think being professional is sticking to the values, sticking to the label that you come in with when you're selling things. And if that is to be a disruptor, then being professional is to be the best disruptor you can possibly be. Wow. There you go. <laughs> I think Nick's given up. He <laughs> said, <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I can't be bothered with this. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> Gemma, go for it. You can pick a number, any number you want. 17. Um, I'll go for number 10, please. Number 10. Okay. This is a good question. I like this one. So if you had to give a gift to a child, what gift would you give? Great question. I so without I, I I don't know if any of my six year old nephews are going to be listening to the Mindchimp podcast before Christmas, but uh, <laughs> um, I'll just hazard a guess that they might not hear it, and I'll I'll sort of tell you about my sort of gift buying theory for for kids. I always buy books, um, partly because I love books, and I think some of the best gifts that I've ever had have been books. Um, but I I don't know how popular that makes me with my six year old audience. Um, <laughs> I think I think yeah. sometimes they'd rather have a football or some sort of sword or computer yeah game. some a co computer game something plastic I don't know but I think when I think back to some of the best presents I had there were books and yeah that's what that's what I always get for kids so sorry if you're a child and you're related to me that's what you're getting. Chad, <laughs> <laughs> um, let's go with you. Um, so I've got a godson. Um, and I bought him, he's only like one, I think. In fact, I don't even know how old he is. Um, but I bought him a, a like a, a pillow, which is shaped in the shape of a hammer from like a Viking era thing. And um, uh, the reason I bought that was because I kind of imagined what I would want as a small child. And sort of as a, a small boy i guess i've stereotyped him to be some kind of viking hero and that's why i bought him a pillow which is shaped in a viking hammer so that's what okay. i would buy a child it, it's really interesting that we're, we're buying gifts for what we think we we're buying gifts for for us for them that's rather true, than for them yeah. i don't know that's because i'm a self-centered narcissist <laughs> but, um... you want him to be able to batter people with kindness yeah there's a paradox there somewhere go for it nick so what what one gift would you give a child if you um, could well i i generally try and find out um what they want and i rather sadly it's not the sorts of things that i would have liked so as a kid i would like lego and stuff like that so that's all my my instinct is to buy you know things like lego but it seems to be computer games and so for the younger children computer games seem to be you know the thing um so it's 
typically finding out what computer games they really like and getting one of those. Okay, okay. And Martin, how about you? I uh, I normally defer to my wife, Sumi, who is brilliant in all things, including gift giving to kids. Um, the last the last thing that she bought her little nephew. Oh, that's Siri talking in the background. Sorry about this. Uh, is it because Sumi and Siri is quite close and it picked up? That's really annoying. Uh, Sumi, Sumi gave for, to our little nephew in Malaysia, she gave him a stone polishing kit which basically looks like a, a small-scale cement mixer. And then you put semi-precious stones and some dust and things into it. And then you let it run for a short while and then, you know, out pops these beautiful stones. That's what we read on the pack when we bought it and we sent it off to Malaysia. It turns out that it has to run for 30 days. So the electricity, uh, even in Malaysia, that it's yeah. going to be using is going to be worth, you know, cost five times more than the semi-precious stones coming out in the end. So I thought it was a brilliant uh, gift, but uh, uh, apparently semi it's like the marshmallow experiment, isn't it? But with cement mixes. It's true. And Let's stones. turn this into gold instead. <laughs> More. Yeah. Brilliant. I, I kind of want one. That's a good sign, right? <laughs> I know. I want one. My The best present that I ever got when I was a kid was, uh, and I was six that year, I got a, 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 a chemist kit called my, my Little Chemist. Do you know this in England? Mm. I you get not. you get like little you know like little tubes full of different things and you can a little book and you can mix things together. It's like a cookbook. I, I but, was, yeah, I'm you know, happy like that. Oh, cool! I, I made uh, I made copper sulf sulfate crystals and then I made turned it into jewelry and I gave it to my sister <laughs> and she got like a mild case of copper sulfate poisoning <laughs> and got ratchets all over her body. <laughs> my memory is <laughs> different. Maybe that's yeah, revealing. Is that I remember the challenge was always what's the most explosive thing you can make. From yes, which is probably why they've stopped selling them. Where'd you get from that? Just, I'm just, I'm just sitting back thinking, mm, what, what, a, what a good mix of um, potential terrorists we've got. Okay, so Charlie, it's back to you then. Question, yeah, me. Okay, uh, I'm gonna go for two. Number two, okay. Deep question, I guess. So, if you, as our species, was to die and you had to leave a written paragraph behind to jumpstart the next species, what would you write? Blimey. That is a deep question. What would I write? Um, it's a trap. That's what I'd write. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a tricky one. Has anyone else got an idea? Maybe we could co-create something. Good question. Anyone? Anyone want to jump in and save Charlie? There was a uh, there's a, a great book. I'm so I'm completely stealing this here. But if I tell you who wrote the book, then it's not as bad, I guess. Uh, there's the book a book called The Rise of Endymion by Dan Simmons. I think it's the third out of like four different books in the book series where there's a, one of the main characters becomes a little bit of a prophet, so to say. And her advice after she boils kind of the uh, 250 words she started out with as the message down to only three, I think was, or two, was uh, choose again. So every time you think you have made the right choice, choose again. 
you know, uh, I, I quite like that, you know, so every time you think you find the right solution, you have to challenge yourself to try again, choose again, do better. I quite like that. You're so smart, Morton. Mm. I wish I was as smart. I was just um, pausing, actually, because I was looking it up. Um, did you know, have you heard about the Georgia Guidestones? They are, quote, a granite monument erected in 1980 in Albert County, Georgia, in the United States. A set of 10 guidelines. Uh, basically, they're the guidelines for reconstructing the world. So the paragraph could oh. be a paragraph instructions as how to get to the the Georgia Guidestones. But, but if it wasn't that, I'm, I'm thinking about Morton's response, it might be something about the importance um, of that's kind of everything being connected um, um, in terms of uh, building a kind of a society which which respects the fact that you're part of an ecosystem um, and you can't simply do, I think that, that the turning point in our civilization has been the view that everything is a resource, you know, uh, a forest is just a resource. And I think that was a marked cultural difference between us and, say, Native Americans, um, who were probably on a better track, kind of frankly. So it would be kind of, yeah, don't don't make that mistake again, I think. When did, what, do you know when that mindset started to take root, Nick? Well, I think Heidegger talks about it, but he basically says that's why we had the Industrial Re- Revolution. It's not because, you know, technology advanced. It's because we changed our perspective of the world and started thinking, oh, all of this stuff is stuff we can use. Um, and that was deeply corrupting. Um, so I guess it would have been kind of, it would have predated industrial revolution, I suppose. Oh, okay. Um, I'm go- yeah. Um, if you could send that link, Nick, that'd be great. The guidelines. I won't mind having a read of that. Okay, cool. Um, let's move on then. So Martin, it's back to you. Pick a no, number. But between 1 and 17. Yeah, so the numbers we've had so far is 11, 8, 7, 10, and 2. All right, let me do number 14, please. Number 14. <laughs> okay, so how does tribalism and creating groups like we do, i.e. race, religion, sports, teams, fans, etc., help and hurt society? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for asking me. That particular question. Uh, <laughs> so um, I don't know. I think that's just like classic thinking about it. I, I, I think uh, I think tribes are, you know, let's not discuss Brexit, but let's just say that if you were a person who came from mainland Europe who chose to settle in the UK, as an example, and you uh, live far away from your family and the friends that you used to have there, then the ability to create a tribe, a place where you feel safe and, and welcome is, is is quite key. And then after a little while, whilst you have been in a that location and you have your tribe, you open up your tribes for other members and you you, you, you start, you know, broadening your the, the, the number of friendships that you have. I, th- I think that's that's pretty cool. Uh, but in, in the kind of the formative years when you're there, having the tribe helps you define yourself against the environment, against the, the rest of the, the culture around you. So it kind of gives you a bit of an identity uh, and that that's helpful so you don't feel alone. At the same time, of course, different tribes have different ethoses. They have different places that they came from. So because of that, there's always going to be a let's say, um, a lack of understanding between the different tribes and then what good and bad is. And, you know, when, when that clashes, that's not necessarily a good thing. And you have people who choose to, you know, leave Europe. <clears throat> okay. Okay. 
Anyone want to build on that? It's a bit of a deep question, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it was not about Brexit. Sorry, I wasn't. I didn't mean to turn it into that. Can I unask the? Can I unask? On answer the question and say, can I choose number thirteen instead of fourteen, please? Yes, let's just do that. Okay, let's do Thank that. You. Thirteen instead of fourteen. Okay, <laughs> not sure if you're gonna like this one. <laughs> so, do you like Brexit? Is that it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, this question is: Are humans better at creation or destruction? Destruction is a form of creation. <laughs> Both. <laughs> It's a classic Gemma. I that from Donnie Darko, by the way. I can't claim that, but um, but it stuck with me because it is right. It's like whenever you're creating something, you you well, not not whenever, but you could be destroying something to create something. You're just changing the way. It then we end up with like Tracy Emmons, the bed. I know, and stuff which like is that. brilliant, it's right? Like, <laughs> there's, a, there's like a level of intellectualism that just takes it too far. I'm all about taking it too far, Charlie. You know, it's all about being extra. <laughs> I agree. There's a tarot um, card called the Tower, actually, which illustrates that dynamic, you know, nicely. And when you read it, the reading can go either way, and it's destruction, but it's also creative. So, Danny, for example, you said, well, you know, 2018 was a terrible year, but the card for that in tarot terms would be the Tower. So it kind of destroyed your existing, but it set the foundations for a new. It laid the foundations for a new life, and a, um, so yeah. I, I can see that played out. I think on the on the creation destruction thing as well. I it reminds me of what we said um, when back in the glory days <laughs> when we're all working together and and the, the sort of the tribe that we're in started to disband. We built a lot of stuff together. We created a lot of stuff together that I was having a bit of anxiety about. I was like, we've spent all this time building all this stuff. What happens then? And I think Nick, it might have been you or it might have been Redmond, I can't remember, who talked about sandcastles and the idea that you you make your sandcastle as good as you can, you put as many shells on it as you can, you, you make it fab, you dig your moat, and then you have to be ready for the sea to come and claim it and leave the sand there for someone else to come and build a sandcastle. That really helped me to sort of deal with that creation, destruction dynamic. I still remember it now when I'm making stuff. I think it's not it's made of sand. It's not always going to be there. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. It's a, it wasn't it's about perspective yeah. because I think you're everyone on the court. You're younger. Um, Morton, you're, you're getting on a bit now, aren't you? I began to realize that when you're beginning of your career, it's characterized by this ridiculous intensity about the projects, the project, the project, project. But what you notice um, after a while is that they're just like sandcastles. So you do some project and then somebody else comes along, does the job and, you know, it gets washed away and they do something else. It may be worse. Or it may be better. And after a while, you kind of realize, yeah, we're, we're just like kind of playing on the beach, really. I mean, we build sandcastles and, and, and you're a bit of a twit if you're the one who's incredibly uptight about how many shells, you know, it's got on it and, and making sure it's completed on time. And um, it, it's all about how you kind of play with other people, really, and 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 that's what's enduring because you leave the beach the sandcastle gets washed away but the memories of what you did there on that day on that beach are, are what will stay with you forever so it for me it, it sort of reflected a shift in perspective i guess hmm. i really like that actually i like the, the sandcastle it's, yeah it's a good one okay cool well it's um it's over to you nick what's what's um what what number would you like Ooh. 18 
18. Okay. <laughs> okay. 18. It was always going to happen, Danny. <laughs> yeah. That's a question, right? Um, let's, let's go with this. Let's make... Right, okay. Here's a question. Changing the question. Changing the question. Well, well, no. So the question is like from like one to seventeen, but Nick went with eighteen, so I was like, oh. right, okay, let's get a good question. So here's a question. Uh, here's wait, a question. Wait a minute. Can I just it. point out, Nick, in all of those situations, whilst we known each other, where you broke the rules, was that because you didn't understand the rules? <laughs> was that really it? It was designed. I think it's probably six and one half dozen there, though. I think. <laughs> Okay, so here's here's a question which is one which I've been thinking about recently, um, and I'll ask I'll ask you all separately. But the question is: is do you even like yourself? Hmm, that's a bit of a dark question, isn't it? It's a good one. It's a good one. Go on, Nick. I don't know, really. I think I'll tell you why I don't know. I've got a, a philosophical reason why I don't know. It's because the more you look at yourself or the more you realize that your strengths are your weaknesses and the good things about you are the bad things about you. So you've already highlighted one in the course of this conversation, Morton, which is, you know, being disruptive in certain contexts can be good. You know, somebody who wants to break the rules, but that can also be bad. And so the, the more you think about it, the more you think that the things the reasons you have for kind of liking yourself may also be the reasons you have for kind of hating yourself. So, mm, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question. Who else? I think it's important to be kind to yourself. I don't think that's the same as liking yourself. So I read a book this summer. This summer I had like a bit of a weird time, had some surgery and like caused me to do loads of reflecting on life and like big questions. And I read a book called um, The Self-Care Project by a lady called Jane Harvey. And I'd never really sort of thought about that stuff before, but it's all about like treating yourself as you would a good friend. So if you are having those moments of like self-doubt or self-loathing and you're like, it's the end of the world, what would you say to a friend in that situation? You'd be like, come on, it's fine. It's not the end of the world. But actually when you're in it, you think it is the end of the world. So I think maybe it's not about liking yourself, but it's like about treating yourself as a friend. I don't know. A deep question. Hmm. Okay, Charlie, how about you? <laughs> uh, I think there are times when I do, but I think most of the time, you know, I feel like a bit of a clown. Um, not in a. Um, I think it. I think it's useful to to kind of rem- remain uh, ridiculous in your own mind because I think what I fear more than anything else is becoming. Um, becoming big-headed or arrogant because I think it's a really unattractive uh, quality and um, maybe I've been guilty of that in the past so uh, so yeah I think there's, there's times when I think you know I'm doing the right thing and I and I like myself when I feel like I'm doing the right thing there are times when I feel like I'm being a complete arsehole and uh, and then I kick myself the next day sort of thing so yeah I think the only times I really like myself and perhaps it's a more honest reflection is when I can see that I did something and that made somebody else feel really great. And then I, I guess I feel good about that. So uh, I noticed that a bit. Okay. Martin, how about you? Um, yeah, I do. Okay. Ah, okay. <laughs> let's, let's, let's add a bit to that. I, I, uh, 
you know, I wasn't sure what to answer when you asked, asked the question. And then I was kind of thinking back to if, if there was a difference between how I see myself now and how I saw myself a number of years ago. Um, and one of the things that I realized was that I, I probably had a little bit of a personal kind of crash when I was 20, probably also when I was 30. And then as Nick said before, I'm getting on a bit as well. So, you know, I'm older than 40 now. And I think like every 10 years, there's probably been some kind of life-changing things happen that made me reevaluate how I saw the world and how I saw my own place in it. And I think that each time I've kind of crashed and then got back up to where I was uh, or back to where I was, so hopefully in a slightly different place, I got a little bit smarter. And I think focusing on helping other people and showing kindness and having this broader awareness that everyone, you know, Nick said, you know, in, in, in each own narrative, everyone is the hero, you know, having a greater appreciation for that motivation different people bring in to their situation, how they see the world and, 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 and appreciating what that actually means for this, for, for how you work with them or interact with them matters quite a bit, you know, because yeah, you know, you like a win-win is not when you win twice. I used to probably think that when I was proper young, you know, I'm the, the, the older I get, the more I appreciate that sometimes you win without winning, you know, if, if not other people around you do it, you know, that's, that's a win too. So I guess getting older, slightly less selfless is, uh, is, is good. Mm. Okay. Okay. I like that question, Danny. That How about one. you, Danny? Um, ooh, I, I kind of, yeah, I'm, a, I'm, I'm with Martin on this one. I think, um, probably, I have to reflect on on past me to understand present me. I guess, um, probably from around from when I turned twenty nine to about thirty two, I was a complete dick. Um. Did, didn't like myself. I say I was completely dick. I didn't like burn anyone's house down or anything like that. Um, <laughs> but like, it's yeah. I wasn't. I, I I was a nice person still then. But there was traits looking back, and even in that moment, I knew I didn't like who I was. Um, yeah, and I think I think you have to do that to understand if you yeah. like who you are now. Right now, yeah, I do like who I am. I think I'm trying. The stuff what I try to do, one way or another, it's me trying to give back, and and that's kind of how I get my my fix, if you like, of, of knowing I'm trying to give back one way or another. Maybe it's in my time, maybe it's in this, maybe it's in something else. Um, but yeah, probably from probably about twenty nine to thirty two ish. Yeah, I didn't I didn't like who I was. I mean, I look back on it, I, like you could ask my family members and, and stuff like that, and they they would say I probably didn't I didn't like who I was at that time. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think you have to kind of look back to know. But yeah, that's a bit deep. I, okay. <laughs> I, I think can can I add to something to this because you know I, I used to uh, so, something that something that changed a few things for me was probably some of the conversations that I had with the back in the glory days. Thank you, Gemma. <laughs> Gemma. Uh, I think the the this, the shift in let's say professionally, Nick, sorry about this use of this word, but uh, I think the shift in, in, in creating solutions that people told us was the right thing to do and that complete shift to saying like, well, we're not going to do it on this. It's actually relevant and helpful for the people we are trying to, you know, em, em, empower so they can make better choices or, or do things better. I think that shift in doing relevant stuff uh, has also affected how, I'm doing a lot of other things in my life as well. You know, unless something is relevant for someone, I just generally stare clear of it. You know, having a fight, if it's not relevant, definitely not doing that. You know, 
regardless of what it is, I think everything that you do has to be done for a relevant purpose, you know, and I, and I think that carries a lot more meaning in what you do. So you're better able to spend your time on the right things, better able to prioritize things. That's a really interesting point. And I was thinking something similar, which is that it connects some of the conversations we're having, I think, your sense of purpose. Because if you have that connection to a sense of purpose, then it's a lot easier to steer your life in a certain direction and to feel know what you feel good about. And it does worry me that I meet a lot of people who don't seem to have that connection to a, a, any sort of deep sense of purpose. They're just sort of going along with what's expected. Yeah. Maybe that's something that happens to you and maybe in your 40s, you said 40s, and kind of maybe it, it happens to people at different times, but kind of that waking up to, hang on, you know, what? why am I doing all of these things? Yeah. You know, and what, what really matters to me? And, and I, I, very, very briefly, I'm just saying also that as you kind of progress in your career, in your life, you know, the choices that you make have bigger impact on people because for, for better or worse, you make bigger decisions for large organizations, at least. You know, I typically see lots of people, lots of my friends are doing that. So having the right foundation for making those decisions, you know, whether relevance or kindness or whatever it is that kind of drives you in those things, that becomes increasingly important because, you know, based on your decisions, again, it'll have bigger impacts. All I was going to say was that um, there is this kind of tyranny of purpose at the moment, though, with lots of people, um, you know who you are if you're listening to this, who um, video themselves, wind flowing through their hair, talking about how they quit their job and now they're traveling the world and swimming with dolphins and who could how you be you talking about job and be rich and famous too. <laughs> um, oh, I don't know. Um, but they're, they're, this kind of this kind of myth that everybody needs to be some kind of guru or everyone needs to be some kind of celebrity that has a really deep and meaningful thing to share, um, frankly, pisses me off. Um, because I think it's pressure. It's it's almost a sort of individualistic pressure. It's part of consumerism, part of commercialization where, you know, you've got to be the hero of your own story, as Nick was saying earlier. And I, you know, I don't buy that. I think there's also something about being kind of content and, um, and accepting that you don't have to, you know, change the world or be the next Gandhi to actually just be a good person and actually live their life in a way that that is beneficial I feel the same way about it and I think it's the tyranny of sort of marketing which is that it can it subverts purpose which is supposed to be a fundamental thing and makes it yeah. like something you can show off about online and it's kind of like well whatever's going to get me hits right you know well mm -hmm. if this purpose isn't getting me enough likes you know I'll switch to talking about something else and I think that's exactly the opposite of what purpose should be you know, it shouldn't be something which is just there for show. It should be a deeper sense of connection. And, and I think that's that's a corrupting influence as I see it. But maybe I'm just an old fogey of social no, media. No, I don't think you are. <laughs> everything, the common exchange of everything is like how many attention, how much attention you're getting for stuff. Um, yeah. And I, I think is, that's deeply corrupting for people. Thank you, Charlie. No, it's the, Gemma, it's the whole, like, the, yeah, the culture of comparison, I think, is what feeds into it. Like, if you look at Instagram, for example, people are literally developing mental illnesses because they're only seeing the good, purposeful, change the world stuff that people post on Instagram. And then they're reflecting, why isn't my life like that? Why aren't I doing that? Um, I think when I think about what we do yeah. um, in learning, there is a big need to connect to someone's why, but I don't think that why needs to be quite so grand. So yes, you'll get some people who are, at work to change the world and they've got that gene and they really want to do it like there's 
they've just got a hunger and a purpose. But there are some people who come to work for a completely different reason. And that's fine. I think it's easy to get sucked into this sort of cult of grandiose gestures and personality and and that sort of guru mentality. Um, and it's quite dangerous, I think. It's it's okay to to come to work for your own reasons. And as learning people, if, if we're going to call ourselves that, I think we need to be creating stuff that helps to connect with that purpose as well as the more sort of lofty stuff as well. Still love Instagram though, but you know. I think it's about diversity. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually can't look at Instagram. Like yeah. I notice my mental state shift after you know five minutes mm. of looking at it because it's like beautiful holiday beautiful holiday yeah Quit start your, your freedom business yeah it's in just Vietnam. insane beautiful holiday start your freedom like it's, and I, I literally just i can't look at it because i'm just mm. immediately kind of descended <laughs> this depression so i just turned it off but anyway um what i was gonna say is there is a kind of element of diversity of thought my what i've noticed is this kind of it's almost people trying to reproduce themselves in the same way that they reproduce themselves physically. They're just reproducing themselves mentally. They're trying to get other people to think like them. Their way is the best way. They have the answer. Um, and it's this kind of lack of self-awareness and lack of appreciation for diversity of thought, which is, um, and they're also the people that shout the loudest. So the yeah. people that the yeah. people that just that are making a difference, but they're making a difference in their own quiet, personal, day-to-day -day way, aren't the ones that are going to video themselves talking into camera and you know on a bridge with wind through their hair kind of thing. So, um, <laughs> but they're the ones doing the tap like if you agree and creating that like group think and like stripping out the diversity of thought. Right? It's like yes, you've got seventeen thousand likes on your last post, but that's seventeen thousand people going yes, I agree. It's like it's almost becoming bad to disagree. That, with yeah, I find that so deeply depressing about social media. So I remember the glory days of social media when people first started blogging and Twitter wasn't yet a thing. And we all thought it was going to massively increase the diversity of thought because you'd be able to connect to anybody in the world. But it seemed to have had, you know, almost precisely the opposite effect. As you say, these created these kind of gravitational wells of light, yeah. kind of sucking people into little kind of, you know, cults of of whatever it is of of you know look at me um, and i find that frightening i guess and horrifying i actually i had to actively follow think people i don't like and disagree with to stop that happening yeah. so i follow like you know i follow all these kind of fairly right-wing trump supporters and i'll get involved in conversations with them because i've always want to give a different perspective and it, i do feel like a bit of a dick because they're kind of going off on one about something and you're like oh by the way and you're sending them links to kind of alternative alternative views but i feel like and it is kind of like trolling them in a gentle way but i also do it because i feel like it's important for people to recognize that their perspective isn't you know the perspective that everyone's agreeing with the only one yeah i think i think it's it's interesting uh, you know I guess going back to the question of do you even like yourself, and when I look at kind of 30 to 32, one of the key reasons why I didn't like myself was because of social media. Um, I closed my Facebook down, closed that down for like two or three years. Because I just, I think people get this perception of, it's like a movie, right? A movie is just a showreel of the best bits. And you go there, you go and watch a movie, and you come out, you're like, why is my life not great like that? I'm like, well, you've you've condensed the whole life down into 90 minutes. You know, no one's life like that. But I think it's that, it comes back to kind of that self-awareness again because when I shut down my Facebook and kind of limited my social 
media activity. I started kind of seeing things for, well, not for what they were, but I started kind of being in a moment a lot more. And I think you'll probably see this next year and probably the year after where you're going to have this, this backlash. I think we've already started seeing it, to be honest, but this backlash of kind of being away from your phone and being 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 bored again. I think I'd love to be bored again. I would love to be bored again. You know, how many of us are actually bored, truly, truly bored? I don't think we have time to do that anymore. Oh, I hate being bored. <laughs> I think you don't get bored, though. It's true. It's like no one has downtime. Like there's always something to do. I don't know if this has just been like a grown-up, which I'm not the biggest fan of, but there's always something to do. Like you could be doing the washing or at the gym or... I don't know, prepping your meals for next week or whatever. Um, but there's always something to fill the time, like including social media. So I think stepping away from your phone is a good thing, but I don't know if that will create a burden. I went to a Quaker school and Quakers sit in silence for like hours. And it's worth trying, you know, even just for like 10 minutes, just can you do it? I suppose it's a bit like meditation practice, but just sitting in silence, not doing anything, but just being kind of alone with yourself. It's surprisingly hard to do these days, I find, because there's so much to distract you that if you're yeah. not listening to music, you're watching TV or you're looking on social media. or Yeah, I remember you did a presentation, Nick, which really stuck with me. It was the one where you were talking about, um, I think it was with the Red Cross, we did that that presentation and we you talked about how if you look if you see people looking at their phones in queues, they're basically, what they're basically doing is, is UX, patching UX, which I like. I liked that kind of analogy, which is that, you know, and you see it on the tube as well. As soon as anyone's mind starts to switch off, or they end up becoming alone with, you know, alone with their thoughts and things, they get their phone out and they start filling their brain with, you know, whatever it is that's on their phone. Because, you know, for that reason, Danny, they're not bored and yeah, and I get escape it. And I think I truly think it's only when you get true boredom that you'll get your true inspiration. Anyway, you know, Nick, you mentioned being able to sit down in boredom. I do that quite a bit now. I kind of just sit down. I have this little bay window. I'm gonna sit down like some sort of old man with a pie, like with a pie, you know, a sort of <laughs> rocking <jacket>. chair. But, <laughs> yeah. Are we, are we just getting um, old? Is that the problem? <laughs> <laughs> are we just like like five really old people talking about the good old days and how, how social media? I'm the only here. Social media is going. The world's going <laughs> to the dogs. <laughs> yeah. Grumpy it's, it's old people. It's interesting, Mitchell, about. Um, kind of you know this infinity pool of how apps are created now the infinity scroll and stuff um there's a really good book which i read a couple probably about a month and a half ago now it's the guys who created the design sprint book um it's called make time and brilliant book brilliant book and i, I probably recommend it but he talks about putting a physical barrier between you and your phone because it's got to a point now where it's just we we inevitably just pick it up and look at it we you need to actually start creating this physical barrier. You now that's that unfortunately is a, the world in which we're in now, and I just find that so. I depressing. think that's going to evaporate. So I think the effect of um, Charlie and I, I guess, probably agree on this. But um, augmented reality and VR is that the interface will just disappear. It won't be a physical object. It will just be information in your field of view all the time. And I think that will be um, there'll be a very different kind of people that live in that world. I think it is not far away. I remember when we first met Nick having this conversation with you about that. And I think I just watched the very first Black Mirror where they have like the chip in their neck. I don't know if you've seen it. And it's basically about Facebook, but they see everything through like a contact lens. 
And I was like, I cannot wait. Chip me up. Like, get that chip in my neck. Get me connected to the mainframe. Um, Now it's completely switched. Like, I don't know if I want that. Like, I want to be able to disconnect and take myself away from it. Um, I already feel like it's a massive part of my life, like massively connected. And I'm not sure more connection is what we really need. Yeah, we're old. I think... Because when you when when I was a younger man, I didn't get enough of the you know the mainframe, the connection, the the game. Same, dude. Same. You know all the shiny, sparkly stars and points that you used to get, and now I'm just like, oh, bloody, leave me alone. <laughs> it's like you, you missed your thirties and just turned fifty instead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's a yeah. I I I don't. I wouldn't want it. I think this is where Google Glass was kind of ahead of the time mm. um, with that Google Glass, and I think that was a very crafty move what they played, because when they realize, well, whoever launches the next version of that, it's just going to make that path so easy to go down. Already, we're already talking to our homes. You know, it's it's not so scary now to have someone constantly just listening to us. You know, I think yeah. It's I think Google Glass did. I don't know if they did it on purpose, like, but I think what they did was it was ahead of the curve, tested the environment, and when actually the people aren't very fish just yet, then Snapchat come out with their snap um, glasses. Actually, they had a bit of an uprah, pulled them back again, and then slowly but surely, we've, they've, you know, assistants have crept into our house now anyway. Like, you know, I've, it's, it's really not that big a deal no more. It's, um, it's interesting. Okay, so um, who's on for the next question? Is it is it you, Gemma, or is it you, Nick? It's not me, um... I do must be Gemma. I will go for number one, please, Danny. Number one. Okay. Uh, let's have a look. Okay, number one. It's an L&D one, unfortunately, Gemma. Mm-hmm. Um, so when it comes to kind of talent and succession, kind of, you know, talent succession planning, I guess, what other ways do we have or do you know of other than the usual um, dull nine-box grid? Ooh. So this is kind of like a, a problem, a problem to the the group. So this more than anything, this is something that's sort of on my radar at the minute at work actually. So I'm starting to think broader than just the learning space and look at talent and OD in general, and look at the technology that can underpin those processes that we have that can make them better. Um, so this is the exact problem that we're having right now. Um, so there's a, I don't think it's a. a a solution or sort of a silver bullet but there's an interesting thing that I think could fix part of the problem there's a tool called Fathom I don't know if anyone's come across it um I'll send the link over after so you can put it in the um in the notes but Fathom is basically a predictive tool that uses your workforce data to predict which roles are going to be automated over time and then suggests alternate ways to deploy those people's skills, capabilities, talents, whatever you want to call them, um, into other roles. So it's not necessarily about replacing people with machines, but it's more about understanding how the workforce is going to change over time and how can we use that predictive data to be able to use people in the best way. Um, So it's an experiment that we're starting to run from next year. Um, So I'll keep you posted on how it goes. I don't know if it is going to work, but I thought that was a, a bit of a different way of thinking about not necessarily career paths, but just the, the way the, that the workforce of the future is going to change and how we can start to be a little bit more predictive with what we're doing with our data. Okay, cool. Um, Martin? 
Is there anything you want to add Not on that? really. Can we get back to me at the end of this instead, please? Yeah, yeah, not a problem. Go for it, Charlie. Uh, I suppose I don't have any strong views. I've not really managed a, a large team and had to think about long-term talent planning. I guess um, if, for me, as a instinct, instinctively, it feels like those kind of nine-box grids and all that kind of jazz um, are quite subjective and feel a bit like the illusion of control. So people get boxed into a box and they get moved around the box and then that's somehow meant to predict their ability to you know, become a leader or whatever it is. And I feel like a lot of the time it just comes down to the relationship that the individual has with their boss or their boss's boss or whatever it is. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't, like I said, it's not something I've got tons of experience in, but that's my my instinct is that it's not really... Yeah, I'm just, I'm just going to say what Charlie said just more <laughs> aggressively. When, when I was Charlie's age, I, I, I thought that talent wasn't really a thing. It was like a made-up thing. Um, and... Um, some people sort of poo-pooed that idea. Um, Emma, if you're listening. Uh, and now, having spent years working in it, I really don't think it is a thing at all. It, and I'm confident it isn't a thing. It's a kind of more HR bureaucracy. Because what actually happens is you do all that faffing around with the paperwork and the nine-box grid. Um, and then when somebody actually has to make a choice about who's going to get promoted, it happens on yeah. a completely different basis. Um, and, and in any case, things are moving far too quickly now for that kind of workforce planning to make any sense at all. So I'm actually writing a paper um, on this t the tonight for as part of something we're supposed to deliver for a big organization. And I think and we've had to answer this question kind of. So what is the future? And I think it badges. So you can see a more kind of gig economy world where people are coming in and out. And most of your labor are contingent anyway. So you don't, isn't it? It just doesn't make any sense to do succession planning. Um, and the, the, it, the world is just too VUCA, if I can use that jargon. It's everything's happening too fast. So basically, you've just got tasks. You've got stuff that people need to do. And the way that you decide who are the best people to do the stuff will probably be something like badges. So I think badges is probably the answer. It's kind of you can go online and, and you can choose somebody who has the badges which indicate that they can do the thing you need them to be able to do because they've done it before um and so i think that will it's just weird hr bureaucracy and hopefully it'll all just all evaporate hmm. okay interesting i think um Gemma, it's good that you mentioned that i, I think there's another good um tool have you heard of i don't know if you've heard of it it's called profinder um i think it's a it's a tricky one this i think yeah it is i, I can't stand nine box grids for me it's a kind of round peg square hole kind of deal we want to put people up in, I think if I remember it right, like it's a top right corner. Um, but realistically, I mean, how many of us go, well, yeah, this person's great, but actually they don't even want to be there anyway. You know, we make this giant assumption of going, no, okay, here's the roles what we need and here's the people who could be good for these roles. Have we even got involved with that person? Have we even said, actually, is this even, is this even something you're, you're interested in? I mean, I think for me, when it comes to kind of talent and succession, I mean, we get insert number 50 people who come in and we join the business and at any point we might have a bit of an interview with them, I don't know, um, and we say, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, these are my skills, this is that, this is this, this is what I'm really good at. But actually, what do we do? With, with, how do we log them? How do we log that, that right at the beginning? What are we doing with that data? Because if we can control it at the beginning, when it does come around to having to do something as silly as this, we've got a bit of a data backlog to say, actually, Joe Bloggs is really good at this. He's shows he's interested in it he's got a natural passion and skill set within that actually rather than making this giant assumption putting our bias towards it here's what we know about joe blocks 
Yeah, that, that feels more organic. Of a real case in point, back in the so-called glory days, is somebody that many of us worked with who was top right on the nine box grid. And so I got the instruction to go back to this person, which I did twice, to say, look, you're really good at your job. You know, maybe you want to be a leader. And, and they basically said, bog off. I've got no interest whatsoever in being a leader. And it exposed for me two fundamental flaws, which is, firstly, because somebody's good at their job, is probably the opposite of what they need to be good at as a leader. So because somebody's high performing and, and, you know, so-called high potential, it doesn't mean they're going to be good as a leader and you should therefore promote them. And secondly, who wants to be a leader? I think that was the old world. That was kind of the world of our parents' generation where the whole point of a job was you stay in the job and you climb the ladder. And I think fewer and fewer people see things that way. So I just think it's a completely mismatched process. Okay, cool. Um, Martin, do you want to add anything? Um, Are you okay with that? Well, I've I've had two kind of thoughts whilst I listen to to you guys talk. It's an interesting podcast. Thank you for letting me sit in on it. On, on this one, uh, but the two things that I've I've been thinking about is that I've I've been looking quite a bit at at let's say early AI and machine learning type systems around skills um, and kind of moving away from doing let's say role based learning where you're saying there's a certain so, so, so not certain set of skills, but a certain set of tasks and outcomes that be, needs to be delivered in a role to saying a person in such, such a role needs to have these skills instead. And based on that, uh, if you have enough big data on an organization, you will see whether or not we have the right skill sets amongst our people or whether we need to start creating those skills with some of our, our people so we can deliver on things in the future. I quite like it from the big data perspective. However, I also find there's a big difference between how people think about, you know, as, as Nick just said, what people do when they go to work. Are they the sum of, of their skills or is it something else that people bring to work? Um, and something I only saw here the other day that kind of changed how I feel about this because, you know, I did like the big data. I did like the ability to train people in specific skills and, you know, enable them to do their jobs. But what somebody spoke to me about the other day was a, a strength system instead where if you allow people to select which strength that they think is key for who they are as a person, what they bring to their job, and then support them in developing those things instead of skills, then that actually works even better. Uh, but I don't see how you can kind of right now merge this whole concept of, of, of uh, helping people, enabling people to deliver better at their strengths and, and how that fits in with the succession planning and, and talent. So it's... Uh, yeah, I'm probably enough a bit of attention there because I didn't have anything concrete to say about it. No, no, thank you, thank you. Um, I guess time to start wrapping up, maybe. A um, couple more questions and then we are done. Okay, so the first one. Um, yeah. When it comes to, have you got your pen? Yeah. Have you got a pen and paper with you right now? Okay, here's what I want you to do: is if you've got a blank sheet, if you've got a blank side of paper, that'd be great. And all I want you to do for me is draw a pig. I'm right. Your name as if we are the pig, or is a separate. Just, just draw the pig. However, you want to draw a pig, Charlie. Is this like a northern thing? Are we talking about a close <laughs> pig, or are we talking about a pig yeah, yeah, where the bacon comes pig from? Where the bacon comes from, <laughs> Lovely. Thank okay, you. And then once you've drawn your pig with your name on, I want you to take a picture and put it into the group. Mine's got eyelashes. She's going to a party. And a top hat. I love it. Sorry, I'll stop describing my pig and giving. 
All right. Okay, and then once you put it in the group, let me know. You can't take a picture on this system. You have to take it on the phone, yeah? Yeah, do it on your phone. It's better. I'm going to take them anyway at some point, so it's better under the group. Posting the pig. Oh, hang on. I've got to turn him around. Yeah. Awesome pig there, Martin. Nick, great pig. Okay, I think Hashtag no bacon, the veggie yeah. in the group. There you go. <laughs> Nick, we found the exact same pig. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. You have lipstick. Gemma, you have literally put lipstick on a pig. Okay. So this is a bit of fun and take it literally with a grain of salt because that's all I do. <laughs> Um, but apparently, how you draw a pig says a lot about you. <laughs> According to whoever made this pig, apparently, when I read up on this, this was a long time ago. Apparently, they use this in a like a an FBI kind of icebreaker thing. That's I think how I come across it years ago. But I just thought, you know, it's a bit artsy. So, do you want to know what your pig apparently says about you? So. So where your pig is located on your page. If your pig is to the top of a paper, you are an optimist. If your pig is at the bottom, you are a pessimist. And if it's in the middle, it means that you are a realist. Okay, the direction which this pig is facing. If your pig is facing to the right, you are innovative. If your pig is facing to the left, you are traditional. And if your pig is facing towards the front, you enjoy arguing with others and creating drama. <laughs> If your pig has many details of you, so if your pig has few details, it means that you are uh, that you might be emotional and naive, and if it's an and a big risk taker. Oh. If your pig has if your pig has many details, it means that you are more likely cautious and do not trust others easily. Okay, the legs. If your pig has four legs showing, it means that you are secure and stubborn. If it has less than four legs showing, it means that you are insecure. Or going to no legs legs body I've got no legs at all. <laughs> I'm just floating head. That's how I feel right now. <laughs> okay. Apparently, your ears. Your ears. So, if you if your pig has big, large ears, guess what? It means you're a good listener. If it has small ones, it means you're not a great listener. Now, this last one is about the tail, and it is largely in debate. As probably the whole test is. Uh, but apparently, <laughs> if your pig has a large tail, it means um, your pig, the kinks within your pig's tail apparently indicate one of two things. Either it indicates your social life or your sex life. The more the kinks has, the better it is. <laughs> well done, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Nick. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty accurate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, too long. And on that note, guys, I think um, I think we've done it. I think um, yeah, one hour thirty-seven minutes. I think that's a good podcast length for sure. You're not gonna is you're not gonna put out an hour and a half <laughs> podcast. No one will listen to it, will they? It's an unfold if you don't. <laughs> too right, Danny. Too right. <laughs> Charlie's pig has glasses. Charlie's pig's got hat. glasses. What does it mean, Danny? 
<laughs> what does he call big personality test me, Nick? Uh, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know, attention to, I don't know, he needs a nice eyes testing. I've got nothing for that one. Yeah, no, maybe it's attention to detail. Could be, could well be, could well be. Um, I'm, I'm amazed of how similar two of the pictures were. Just a bit. Just a bit. I, I thought it was kind of like a, a new career for you, like Dar- uh, Danny Darren Brown, like Mind Magic via the podcast. Oh, I like that idea. <laughs> I have a, I have a, I have an interesting story about Darren Brown. Nick, I think I've told you about this before. So I've, I've met Darren Brown like two or three times. And um, he basically, through one way or another, um, and I nearly went on his show. I got to the, like, the last final part of his, his show. But he taught us a few different things, and one of us was how, how to kind of win with rock, paper, scissors, and how to always win with that. I know someone whose sister was on the um, Darren Brown show. Oh, really? My, my sister was on the Darren Brown show. <laughs> wow, okay. Yeah. 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 Really? Yeah, she was. She was hypnotized and uh, had to do a singing thing. Using the subject and going back to the rocks as a paper thing, I'm designing a. This is a. This is a plug. I'm designing a, a Christmas drinking rocks as a paper game, which I will post. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'll post it on LinkedIn, or maybe I will send it to you, Danny. You can post it with it. But it's going to be epic, and it's going to involve lots of shots. Okay. Sounds perfect. <laughs> can you do that at the same time as you play that game with the Santa hats on your TV? I don't. I don't think I've got that. I'll be waking up in February, Martin. Like, what's where's where's January gone? <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, on that note, guys, it's been an absolute pleasure. All that's left for me to say is have a great Christmas and a and a good New Year. Happy Christmas! Thank you, Danny. This is good luck with the new role, Danny. Yeah, good luck. Happy Christmas. Bye. Bye. Yeah, it was fun. Cheers, guys.